Got to surround yourself with people that believe in you. So in that same example that I mentioned, that was my biggest mistake and biggest learning. Um, my wife was absolutely amazing. Um, she was a rock and she was picking me up off the ground when I was in the corner crying and rocking back and forth, you know, when that project was going south. And she was like, Noah, you got to keep going. You know, this is just a part of the journey. We're going to get, we're going to get through it. And it's going to be, it's going to be fine. Um, so she really picked me up and you have to surround yourself with people that are going to tell you that because there's going to be days where it just sucks. You know, it's just, it's not a good day. There's gonna be days where it's like, this is the greatest job in the world. I love it. Right. Um, but you know, some days you're like, oh gosh, that's just, nothing's going, going my way. And you got to be able to get through those. And I think a huge re or a huge, um, a, a huge reason why I was able to get through those days were my wife and then the, the encouraging people that were surrounding me. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as a CEO and founder of Miller IP Law, where we help startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. Now, before we dive into this episode of The Inventive Journey, just a quick shout out to our sponsor, Anchor. Anchor.fm is a platform that we use for all of our podcasting needs. So we started out on a different platform and quickly found that it wasn't enough for what we needed to make sure that we could provide a great podcast. So we switched over to Anchor.fm. It's been a great experience. We're able to provide an even better podcast and definitely invite if you are uh, thinking about starting your own podcast or you're wanting to or you already have one going and you want it to be even better, definitely look it over to anchor.fm. Easy to switch over and definitely worth it. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com and we're always here to help. Now, today we have another great guest on the podcast, Noah uh, Labhurt or Labhart. If I can Labhart, right. You got it. <laughs> and uh, this is a quick introduction to Noah. So uh, Noah went to school at uh, Texas A&M. Um, started out computer programming, I think switched over to math and computer science because he found that uh, that was a, a bit more in line with what he wanted to do and uh, graduated and started consulting on .NET for a, a .NET development company. Also, I think went and played in a rock band for a period of time, which I don't know how that fits in with everything, but sounds like a good time. Um, and then changed uh, jobs so he could do, also do the band. Um, went and did a mobile uh, development agency on his own for a while. And then in the middle of that, in the middle of that has also done his own business. So with that much as a quick introduction, welcome on the podcast, Noah. Thanks for having me, Devin. Excited to be here. So I gave kind of the, the brief or quick introduction to a bit of your journey, but why don't you take us back in time a bit to go into Texas A&M and uh, kind of how your journey started from there. Yeah, sure. Well, again, thanks for having me. You know, at A&M, I, I started out in the computer world, started out in computer engineering because I was excited about computers. I didn't get my first computer until I was in high school. Uh, I was probably a senior in high school and, um, you know, it was back in the days of dial-up and, and <laughs> floppies and all that stuff. Uh, but I was excited about it. I was like, this is going to be cool. I want to go do something in that. Um, got to school and realized that I didn't know how to study and I uh, got weeded out pretty quickly from the computer engineering program. Um, interestingly enough, though, I switched to mathematics, which is, is similarly hard, uh, but, but math was um, a, a math I just got. I just, I, I feel comfortable in the mathematics world. So switched into applied mathematics with a computer science minor. So did some programming with a mathematical foundation. Um, as I got to the end of my degree, I, I thought, okay, uh, I don't think I wanna be a mathematician anymore. I don't wanna be a professor. I don't wanna do that anymore. Um, I wanna code. And so I decided to tack on another year 
and, and ended up graduating with two bachelors, one applied mathematics and one within computer science. And, uh, and then started, started coding uh, out of Texas A&M um, for a, a company called Software Architects and doing .NET development. Hmm. So that was, the, that was the college years. So now, so you're coming out of college and said, okay, I'm going to do kind of the do or focus on computer programming, got into .NET development and uh, started out for doing that for a while. Now, remind me, because I, I, I didn't, I can't necessarily fit all the pieces together. How did the rock band play into that? Or how did you get going with that? And because that seems like <laughs> a bit different than uh, doing computer programming. So how did that fit into everything? Sure, sure. So did .NET development for software architects for a year. Started playing in my rock band. All my bandmates lived uh, in south of Fort Worth in Texas. And, um, so wait, wait, you know, I missed it. And I know I'm jumping in right away. So how did you get started with the rock band? It was just you had friends who were in it oh, or what? Yeah. What made yeah, you decide? Had, to, and was it during college or did you start after while you're working or how did you do that? So I, so backtrack a little bit. I, I played guitar since I was in high school, played in a band in high school, and I played guitar throughout college, but didn't meet my bandmates until um, until I was uh, in, switching, well, right before I switched jobs. Um, and I met them through church, actually. Uh, so so met them. We were playing in a, a praise and worship band for church, and then we started our own thing outside of that. Okay, so it makes sense. So now picking up with your story, so you're kind of working at the .NET developer. It was kind of wasn't allowing you to do the band, so you decided to switch locations so it would be more conducive to playing in the band while you worked. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I was driving 45 minutes south of town, uh, and I was like, this just isn't going to work. And, and my job that I was in, just you know, it was sort of, um, I was having to go to different client places in DFW. Um, so I ended up switching jobs to go work at Alcon Laboratories. Uh, and playing the rock band. So I basically worked at Alcon and then uh, toured on the weekends, we'll say, and, and, um, and played in the rock band. Um, worked at Alcon Laboratories for eight years. Uh, worked in a bunch of different areas around you know, document management, um, which is like scanning and imaging, OCR, uh, and then worked in sales commissions, which is the totally other side of the world um, at Alcon, but calculating commissions for sales forces. And then I worked in manufacturing. Um, for four years, I, I ran an IT group um, that supported both manufacturing plants in Fort Worth. Um, so did that. Uh, did the band through most of the first four years, I would say. Um, and then the band broke up. <laughs> and, you know, as all this, good bands eventually do most of the time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so that happened. Um, and very fortunately for, for me, at that same time, I met my wife. And um, and we got married, and uh, we're we're married to this day, and have three three little kids. Um, and then uh, so towards the end of the eight years in corporate world and at Alcon, I started to get the itch, right? The you know, the entrepreneurial itch. You know, I was very well taken care of at Alcon and in the corporate world, and worked with some great people, learned some great things, really had some amazing opportunities, but I couldn't see the fruits of my labor. Like it didn't matter how hard I worked, I just couldn't see anything but the needle kind of barely flickering. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it makes sense. I was in IT, you know, Alcon's products are eye care, you know, eye care products, surgical products, pharmaceutical products for the eyes. And you know, IT is kind of a necessary evil. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I wasn't really a strategic partner, if that makes sense. Um, no, it definitely makes sense. Yeah. So, so ended up deciding to, uh, well, I started to do development on, um, started to do development on my own on the side, uh, mobile app development with a buddy of mine, uh, Chris Graby. And we were just tinkering around with apps, just kind of, kind of, you know, um, having fun doing our own little projects. Mm -hmm. And, 
and then I got hooked. It's like, I want to do mobile development and hmm. I want to do my own agency. So like, this is going to be the, the thing. So with the huge, huge support of my wife, jumped out from the corporate world and um, started my own mobile development agency. And that was in 20, 2015. Now, one question, because you said that, you know, the job you were working at, they treated you well, it was a good job, you enjoyed it. So what was that? Was there kind of a tipping point or a trigger or anything of that nature to say, okay, yes, I could keep going where I'm at and I do fine, but I really want to do my own thing. Was it just simply just, Hey, this is fun. I love it. And I want to do more of it. Or, Hey, I see a better opportunity here. I can captain my own ship or kind of what was that catalyst that uh, got you into doing your own thing? Yeah. I mean, it, it was kind of a combination of a lot of those things. It was, it was the combination of not seeing the fruits of my labor of, you know, working really hard and not seeing, seeing uh, myself make a difference. Um, and then, um, and then kind of wanting to be the captain of my own ship. Definitely that, uh, entrepreneurship is in my, my family's blood. I have lots of entrepreneur uncles and cousins and family and things like that. So it's kind of a, um, a lab part thing we'll say. Um, and so I just, I had the itch and, uh, and had to jump out and do it. So now, so now you make the, the, the leap in that. And one of, you know, one of the hard things or potentially hard things is especially in the services industry and there's hard things in every industry but again to the services industry we're doing you know development that is to try and build the clientele build people that will pay you and that you'll hire you on and that you know that you can get your name out there and get a reputation all of the above so as you're jumping out did you have anything lined up did you have some potential clients or people we thought you'd approach or you're just saying hey i'm going to hang my own shingle and i'm going to hit the or you know hit the pavement and start finding them or kind of how did you get that started once you decided to, to leap out there Sure. That's, it's a great question. Honestly, it was a pivotal moment in my, my entrepreneurial journey and a, and my professional journey, journey period. Um, so I did jump out with a project. I jumped out with a project that was you know, enough to kind of sustain for a little while. Mm. Um, but, but to be honest, I massively screwed that project up and, and ended up having to return all of the money that was paid uh, to me out of my savings account into uh into my client's account um so it did not it did not go well um mm. and and i basically bit off way more than i could chew tried to start a big agency and, and big was relative it was you know, <laughs> big big was more than me right <laughs> uh so an agency tried to start a, an agency and bite off more than i could chew you know i'd i'd been kind of sitting in the corporate world where i had the infrastructure around me and i was i was you know sort of taking it for granted and um, tried to jump out and do that thing. And the project went really bad. Um, but uh, it really made me take a hard look at how I was doing things. And, and I started to think, okay, rather than trying to mastermind this agency you know, thing, I'm just gonna start out with agency just being me. I know how to code. I know how to write, write software. I'm gonna start out just doing it me. And so, so I did, I, I brought on some projects, uh, did some work, had some successes, brought on more work, got overloaded. It brought on people. So essentially grew with my, with my growth and that, that made me more successful throughout the, the rest of the time. So, you know, and, and I think that that, you know, it's always hard. I always found at least, especially with software and there are other ones, but it's always so hard to scope in the sense that, you know, you go and you think, okay, we've got a scope. I can do it with this many hours. You can calculate it. And then inevitably the project changes or people want to go a different direction or add this additional feature. And so it's always hard. And then, you know, so biting off a bit more than you can chew definitely makes sense in the sense that it's hard to one to scope that, especially if it's your first project, your first client and trying to figure that out is oftentimes one where you eat a lot of the cost because you don't know what you don't know until you actually do it on your own and what's i also found interesting 
excuse me, is that uh, even, you know, even if you've worked under somebody else and you've done a lot of projects and done a lot of work on them, it's a completely different ballpark when you're doing it on your own, you're making those decisions, you're the boss, so to speak. It's not, you know, it has a much different uh, look and feel to it. So, so now you, you start to build that agency. And I, I, I think you, when we talked about before that agency is still going and it's still alive. Is that right? It's it's not I actually shut it down okay. at the beginning of a uh, of last year, but it went on for a while, uh, coexisting while I was doing variable too. Oh, got it. So so now is it? So now you do the agency for a period of time. It shuts down as you're doing some other things. So how did where did you transition next? Did you say, hey, it, I'm shutting this down, but I'm still gonna you know still got the entrepreneur bug and I still want to do my own thing, or to say, hey, oh, I've had it, I'm gonna go back to corporate or kind of what was that next phase? Is is that shut down and you were uh, continuing on? Sure, sure. That's a great question. So. So I did the mobile development agency for a couple of years, basically built startup platforms for people. Um, and, and I got a different itch. I got the startup itch, right? I wanted mm-hmm. to, to do my own startup, um, but didn't have any ideas. I, nowadays, I'm more of, a, more of an idea guy and kind of can, can think about stuff that can be built looking at problems. Back then, I was like, I'm the executor. I don't have any ideas. I need an idea guy, right? Um, and so, but I could shoot holes in startup ideas all day. I was like, okay, I'll build that for you, but I don't really, I wouldn't put my money in that. Um, fast forward to, you know, a year and a half or so, I started talking to my, um, to my friend, uh, Rylan Barnes, who's a successful tech entrepreneur. He's my college roommate. Um, and I said, Hey, I'm the, I'm the, you know, I, I'm got this startup itch. I want to do it. You know, I want to, want to do my own startup, but I don't have any ideas. Let me know if you know anybody that's looking for a technical co-founder. And he mm-hmm. said, you need to talk to Mike. And so Mike is a mutual friend who is my partner at variable now. Um, Given my time in manufacturing, Mike pitched me the idea for Variable, which is you know an on-demand marketplace for manufacturing labor, and uh, I couldn't shoot holes in it. I was like, "This is going to work. This is the one that I want to commit to." So that was in um, 2016. We formed the company. We launched our pilot in 2017, February, um, and we have been growing ever since. Uh, I did try to run TouchTap alongside of it for a couple of years. Um, and that ended up being way more trouble than it was worth. So, so now you kind of, you know, tried to run that for a couple of years, side by side, and it's hard, you know, and I've done, I've done both. I've done things where I exclusively focus on things. Sometimes I'll uh, running more business, you know, multiple businesses, and it's always hard to find that balance. But as you're now doing that and you transition to full time, you're doing that with your, you know, with the co-founder, how have things gone? You know, now you've launched, I think you said launched around 2017 or so, mm-hmm. and you've been doing that for the last four years as a band, a hockey stick straight up and it was successful from day one was it up and down all around kind of how did that how did that launch go with the, this round of kind of jumping into that startup and um <clears throat> taking that plunge absolutely so it we haven't um we have grown every month since we started um you know those first first few months of the pilot were really more kind of proving the concept we did a few throughout the last four years we've done a few seed rounds to kind of boost us up and, and grow the team to where we could grow but um, we've grown every year, um, every month and every year, uh, which has been really cool to see and kind of just proves that our, the, the industry needs our, our model. Um, so it's been, a, it's been a lot different than jumping out and doing my own agency with projects going bad. I, you know, during that agency timeframe, I tried a few other things, a social media agency, I tried a few other software ideas and just didn't stick, right? Um, weren't discouraging, but just didn't stick. Learned a ton of different things from each one of those things. And applied it all to variable when when we started, and uh, and yeah, it's been off to the races. We're in in ten states now. We're trying to grow the Midwest, a heavy industrial area. 
um, and, and we're in nearly uh, 20 markets or so. Well, that, that is awesome. Sounds like a lot of great growth. And that's uh, definitely uh, always fun when, you know, when you step out on your own, take the entrepreneur leap, do the startup to, to have that success is always a great uh, direction to be headed in. So yeah. now, and, and you kind of touched on it a bit as well. It sounds like, you know, you're continuing to grow, have opportunities to pursue in the future and to expand and to even uh, take advantage of that as well. So kind of now with that, as we, you know, I always have uh, two questions I ask at the end of each podcast. So we're going to, we'll transition those now. So the first question is, is along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made and what did you learn from it? Sure. I, I definitely think um, the worst one is the one that I learned the most from is when I was describing that project. Um, it took off, you know, a bit off way more than I could chew. And, um, you know, that, that project went south really quickly. You know, my, my family was impacted. Obviously we had to give all the money back for the project. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. But, but what I, what I did learn from that was to start small and to build on top of wins. Uh, and that's been something that I have, I have carried with me to this day, use it every day and variable is, 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 you know, how are we maintaining those wins from the beginning and growing on top of them? rather than, um, than trying to just tackle the whole thing and eat the whole elephant, right, in one bite. Um, so that's been, that's been the, the biggest learning opportunity for me. No, and that, uh, you know, and I think that sometimes you look back and, oh, man, how did I make those mistakes or I wish I hadn't? And, you know, but it is that at least that learning that you can say, okay, now when I go do the next one, I'm going to be that much smarter as to how to make sure that I don't go over budget and that I don't promise more than I can deliver. It's kind of the old, you know, <laughs> cliche saying but it always is it still holds true you always want to you know under promise and over deliver but it's not always easy to know how much to promise or what is under promising and what is over delivering and how to make yeah. that balance and so i think that that's definitely a lesson to learn so now we'll jump to the second question which i always ask which is if you're now uh, talking to someone that's just getting into a startup or a small business what'd be the one piece of advice you'd give them yeah I, you know i think it's it's all about the, the people that you surround, uh, surround yourself with. You got to surround yourself with people that believe in you. So in that same example that I mentioned, that was my biggest mistake and biggest learning. Um, my wife was absolutely amazing. Um, she was a rock and she was picking me up off the ground when I was in the corner crying and rocking back and forth, <laughs> you know, when that project was going south and she was like, Noah, you got to keep going. You know, this is just a part of the journey. We're going to get, we're going to get through it. And it's going to be, it's going to be fine. Um, so she really picked me up and you have to surround yourself with people that are going to tell you that because there's going to be days where it just sucks. You know, it's just, it's not a good day. There's going to be days where it's like, this is the greatest job in the world. I love it. Right. Um, but you know, some days you're like, oh gosh, that's just, nothing's going, going my way. And you got to be able to get through those. And I think a huge re or a huge, um, a, a huge reason why I was able to get through those days were my wife and then the, the encouraging people that were surrounding me. No, and I think that that is that's a great piece of advice. Is I mean, I always I always joke, you know, entrepreneurship. One week you feel like you're a success, and the next week you feel like you're a failure, and that's just a part of the journey that everybody goes through. And there's a lot of truth to that. And it's so much easier whether it's you know a spouse, a business partner, a friend, somebody that's been through it before, whoever it is, to surround yourself with those people that can boot or you know uh, help, you know lift you up help you to or deal with those. If nothing else, listen, or be a, li a listening ear or somebody you can complain to, bounce ideas off with and all of those definitely makes the journey significantly easier. So I think that, that that's a great piece of advice. So um, 
Well, as, as we wrap up, and uh, just as a reminder to the listeners, we do have the bonus question on this episode where we're going to talk uh, about a little bit about intellectual property and uh, Noah's top intellectual property questions. So stay tuned for that at the end of the podcast. But if for the, all of you that uh, are, uh, don't want to stay tuned, definitely understand. And so as we wrap up, if people want to reach out to you, they want to find out more, they want to be a customer or a client, they want to bounce an idea off of you, they want to uh, try and hire you to do some coding for them, they want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to reach out and find out more? Sure. So I'm, I'm uh, on LinkedIn. So you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, my LinkedIn profile, or you can learn more about variable at variableops.com. Um, I'm also a podcast host. You can, you can hear some of my podcast stuff at codestory.co. And then if you want to learn about me, uh, my personal website, noahlabhart.com. Awesome. Well, I definitely plenty of ways to connect, find out more, and definitely encourage everybody to, to go and check everything out. Well, as we wrap up before the uh, bonus question, thank you again, Noah, for coming on. It's been fun and a pleasure. Now for all of you else or the listeners, if you have your own journey to tell and you want to come or apply to be on the podcast to, to share your journey, just go to inventiveguest.com and we always love to share your journey. A couple more things as listeners. One, make sure to uh, click subscribe in your podcast player so you know when all your, these awesome episodes come out and two, leave us a review so other new people can find out about the podcast as well. Last but not least, if you ever need help with patents, trademarks or anything else, just go to strategymeeting.com and we're always here to help. So with that, now we have the chance, or you have the chance now to, to flip the tables a bit. I always get to sit in the driver's seat, ask the questions and, uh, you know, throw the hardballs that you have to react to. But now it's your turn to, to flip the tables a bit or shift gears and to ask your number one or your top intellectual property question. So with that, I turn it over to ask your question. Sure, sure. I, I definitely appreciate that. So my, my question is around kind of maybe the boundaries of what is patentable and, you know, and what is what is not. And I'm in software, right? So I write software and, um, you know, I, I tend to look at a lot of the things that we build um, as not being patentable because, you know, it's it's software. Like someone else could build the exact same thing or, or someone else could be using the exact same framework or maybe we used a library. So, you know, it's really not 100% our solution. So I guess my question is, how do you know where those boundaries are where you can say, okay, we can patent those or what's a good rule of thumb uh, to know when you can patent something or versus not? Yeah. No, and that's a fair question. I'll, I'll give kind of the general standards for all, all, you know, for all patentability, but then one of the questions that software is a bit of its own animal as well, or has like a couple additional nuances. So generally there's three standards for patentability. When you're looking at is, is, is something patentable? One is called novelty. Has anybody else previously invented it? So somebody else has previously invented it. You can't get a patent on something that somebody else has invented. So that's an easy one. Second one is obviousness. And obviousness kind of has a couple different meanings to it. One is, hey, what we're doing is, you know, we're, what we're, yeah, not one person's invented this, but we're just taking a, a combination of a couple of things that are out there. We're putting them together in an obvious way. We're not really adding anything new. We're just kind of putting a couple of things together. That one's one definition of obvious. The other one is kind of, hey, what? okay, it, it's not out there exactly, but it, we're just making an obvious tweak of something that's already out there. In a sense, you always use, uh, you know, let's say all cars out there are black. If you go back to Henry Ford, you can have any car you want as long as it's black. And, you know, let's say all the cars out there were black and said, well, I'm going to paint it purple. I was the first one to come up with purple, you know, sell a purple car. Well, technically, I came up with something novel because nobody else had done a purple car before. But it's an obvious variation because people say, hey, but yeah, you bet you painted walls, of, you know, other colors. It's not unheard of to paint something a different color when paint's already out there. So it's not it's, it wouldn't be it'd be an obvious variation. So those are a couple kind of things. If you look at novelty, has anybody else invented it and obviousness? Those are a couple that you start out with. Now, software always gets a bit into 
a bit of a different realm in the sense that there, there's an additional kind of criteria requirement that gets into what's called abstraction. And so most of the time, software certainly starting out is patentable. We, I've done it for a lot of our clients. I worked for some of the biggest clients with Intel and Red Hat and Amazon.com that also all have done software patents. But there is a bit of nuance because you have another criteria that's called abstraction. And it's basically in kind of simple terms, it's, well, if you were to take, you know, you can't patent something that people have previously done with pen and paper or in their head, and all you're doing is sticking it on a, a device, you're sticking on a processor. And so if all you're saying, hey, I, two plus two equals four, everybody's done it by pen and paper. Now I'll have a computer do two plus two equals four. Well, that's not really anything. It's still, you know, it's, it's, it's abstract. You're not, you're just doing something that they've already done on pen and paper. And mm -hmm. so you have to take, when you get into software sites, particularly, you have to look and say, okay, as an example, what inputs am I having? What analytics, what are we doing with, how are we gathering those inputs? First of all, is it with sensors? Is it with user input, graphical user interface? Do we do anything to get specific to those inputs? Are we doing it for multiple devices? Are we having to aggregate it together? Are we having to filter it or anything else? And then what do we do with those inputs? Are we making, doing data analytics or doing AI or machine learning? Are we doing, you know, different weightings or how are we using that inputs? And then what are we doing as an output? How are we actually in putting there, you know, providing it as a notification to a user? Is it an end result? Is it, you know, does it do something? Is it a game or whatever it is? And then you can start to say, okay, now we're not just doing something that's abstract that people have done on pen and paper in their head. We've actually got all these additional steps. Step. And they can be also, hey, we're stitching a lot of systems together. So sometimes as you kind of mentioned, you're saying, hey, there's libraries out there, there's what others have done, but we're adding in these things that make it all work together or make it work differently. So we add, here's a library here, here's some uh, open source here, but you know, what we're doing is stitching it all together such that a system as a whole is cohesive and we have, it's difficult or takes a lot of time and effort to make that system work or seamlessly and work all together. So those are kind of when you start to get into patentability. The other last kind of parting comment is you know, patent or software is always one that there's a bit more of a pendulum that swings back and forth. If you'd have gone back 10 years ago, it was fairly easy to get a software patent. Five years ago, pendulum kind of swung the other way and it was very difficult to get a software patent. Now we're kind of somewhere in the middle to where it's not as easy as it was originally. It's not as difficult as it was five years ago. And so it takes some navigating, it takes some understanding of, especially on that last criteria of abstraction, what that means, but it allows you to still navigate it. So. With that, we'll wrap up the, the podcast and appreciate the question. Always fun to chat a little bit about intellectual property. Appreciate you again, Noah, uh, coming on the podcast. It's been fun and a pleasure and uh, wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Thanks, Devin. Appreciate it. This was fun. <laughs>